0: we turn in scripture to psalm 78 I'm going to read the first 24 verses i had said through verse 39 but we'll read the first 24 verses of the psalm and then Turn our attention to the fourth verse. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength And his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God, and refused to walk in his law, and forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters to stand as in heap. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused rivers to run down, waters to run down like rivers. And they sinned yet more against Him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, He smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can He give bread also? Can He provide flesh for His people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth, wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation, though he had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven and had rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them of the corn of heaven. This far we will read the word of God. Verse 4 We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. Repeatedly in Scripture, God and the Spirit command parents to teach our children you have this already in Deuteronomy 4. "...but teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons, especially the, the, the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb. Teach the things your eyes have seen and your ears have heard that God did for you." This is repeated in Deuteronomy 6. As soon as the law is given for the second time. "...these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart." And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Other times in the Old Testament, Israel is reminded that she must teach, and the prophets announce that God's people will be destroyed for lack of knowledge. The same command comes to parents in the New Testament that well-known verse, Ephesians 6, verse 4, the calling to fathers not to provoke our children to wrath, but to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The repeated emphasis of Scripture on the need to teach our children is not due to the fact that apart from this reminder, parents would not teach. It is inevitable that the parent teaches his or her child. But what is not inevitable is that the parent teaches his or her child this, the works of the Lord, His praises, and His strength. It is inevitable that the parent teaches, but it may well be that the parent, himself given over to a very earthly mindset, will teach his child only earthly things earthly values will teach his child to be a good citizen of this country and especially to have the values, ungodly values and morals that this society loves. The reason therefore why the Holy Scriptures emphasizes again and again that we are to teach is because we are not prone to teach the right thing. And set before us, In the text, by implication, is the absolute and foundational need of every child to learn about Jehovah God, and therefore the abiding calling of every parent to teach about Jehovah God, and therefore implied the promise of the blessing of Jehovah, who continues his covenant in the line of generations as we teach our children about Jehovah God. And he blesses that instruction by his Holy Spirit. The fruit of these many commands to teach is the resolve of parents. That resolve is set forth in different places in the Scripture also. You see examples in the Old Testament. And Abraham and others, who will teach? You read in Psalm 34 verse 11, Come ye children, hearken unto me, says the psalmist, but also the parent, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And you have in our text the resolve of godly parents we will not hide them from their children showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. But underscoring both how necessary that our children be taught, and how urgent that we teach them, the psalm recounts the history of Israel from the time of her leaving Egypt until the time of David and Solomon. And there's one theme, well, two, that come out in this psalm again and again, and in that history. Yes, the miracles of Jehovah God The wonderful things He hath done. That's beautiful. But what's not beautiful is that they forgot. And they turned away. And they questioned God. And they said He was good to us once in giving us water. Is it possible? We rather doubt it is that He would give us bread. You have in Psalm 78 a faithful God contrasted with a faithless, unfaithful Israel. Lest our children be like Israel, we will teach. That's the resolve of godly parents set forth in the text. I call your attention to it under the theme, Teaching the Generations to Come. Notice with me first, the God-centered instruction, second, the God-given duty, and thirdly, the God-glorifying vow. Our eyes focus then on Jehovah God, for He is the one only unchangeable being, the one who determines all reality, the one who is eternal, the one in whom all of our life and our salvation depends, we will look to Jehovah God and Him we will teach. The content of the instruction that our text speaks of centers in two things about Jehovah. The first is what He has done, His wonderful works that He hath done. The parent is going to teach history. The history of the church. The history of Israel, the church of the Old Testament. The history of Jehovah's faithfulness to His church. But in the context and in the process, the history of one miracle of Jehovah after another for the good of His church. The works of Jehovah, after all, are those works that we would call His providence, His government of all of history, but also those works which show that He directs providence with a view to the salvation of the church. For everything that Jehovah decrees and everything that He brings to pass has this ultimately as its goal, to take sinners, elect sinners, fallen in Adam and Eve, Renew, regenerate, having provided Christ for us, and exalt us to heavenly glory. That, in a nutshell, is the work of Jehovah, which he carries out unchangeably, infallibly, faithfully, again and again. And Israel's history is full of instances of this work. It was the plan of Jehovah God to bring her out of Egypt. That was part of her salvation. Also to bring her through the wilderness where he would show that he was her ever constant and faithful and present helper. And then to bring her finally into the promised land of Canaan. The picture of heaven. This is Israel's salvation. Not just in an earthly sense, but in picture form, her salvation in Jesus Christ. And along the way, he does works. Miracles. Why, in other words, will you teach your child history? To point your child to the God who governs history. And then the first place is what the text brings out about Jehovah. In the second place. Not just what Jehovah has done, but who he is. We will show to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength. The word praises in our text does not refer to the church as she gathers and praises him, it does not refer, first of all, to songs of praise and confessions of doxology. Rather, the word praises in our text refers to Jehovah God in all his praise worthy features that is we would call them his virtues his attributes i will teach jehovah i will teach my child about jehovah's mercy about his love his grace his wisdom his knowledge oh he also has a justice according to which he punishes sin and sinners. And I must teach my child that. He has a forbearance. He's a very patient God. Patient on the one hand, long-suffering with his people, and that he bears with our weaknesses patiently, but also taking his time to bring judgment. And I'm going to teach my child that, so that my child doesn't think that whenever something wrong happens in life, Jehovah should come and address it and put it right immediately. These are the praises of Jehovah. And then of all of the praises, the psalmist singles out his strength, we would call it, his power, his omnipotence. In all that Jehovah is, and in all his displaying of whom he is, He shows His unlimited power to do as He pleases. Certainly, the miracles in the wilderness did that. Who but Jehovah could bring water out of a rock? Who but Jehovah could send bread from heaven every day? The power of Jehovah is on the foreground here. then there's one other virtue or attribute of Jehovah that binds all this together. And that is His covenant faithfulness. Although the word isn't used in the text, it's implied in the text in the use of the name Jehovah. We will not hide them. We will show the praises of the Lord of Jehovah. And you know that Jehovah is... God, the one only true God, but also that Jehovah is that name by which Jehovah made himself known to Israel. All the people of the world know there is a God. They might deny it, but they know there is a God, a great, supreme, powerful one to his people. He said, I am Jehovah. I am that I am. Eternally unchanging Constantly faithful. And therefore the promise to Abraham to save Abraham and his seed, Jehovah remembered when Israel was in Egypt's bondage. And He brought them out. The promise to Abraham to save Abraham and his seed, Jehovah remembers to you and to me today in the midst of an evil society in which we live. And He says to us, I'm preparing you for glory. The faithfulness Now that faithfulness of Jehovah God, as I said in my introduction, stands out in stark contrast in this psalm in light of Israel's repeated rebellion. In verse 11, the psalmist speaks of Ephraim forgetting his works and his wonders that he had showed them. It isn't yet the time of the division of the kingdom. The psalm doesn't speak of what happens after the time of David and Solomon. It must be, therefore, that in the time of the judges, the incident is referred to in which Ephraim says, You didn't call us? You didn't call us to help fight the enemy. So we don't get the glory for the victory. And so we're not about to come now and help you. Later on in verse 17, the provocation of the whole nation in the wilderness by tempting God and asking meat for their lust. Later on in verses 56 and 58, the sins of Israel during the time of the judges. They tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not His testimonies talking about times when, during the time of the judges, they worshipped the idols of the nations whom Jehovah had cast out before them. In verse 61, the sin of Saul and the Israelites at the time of Saul, so that Jehovah delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Again and again and again, the people of God are unfaithful, but Jehovah is faithful to His promises. This we will teach our children. How necessary that the child learn this. In the first place, because the child is not, by nature, going to learn the knowledge of Jehovah God. That is, it's not the sort of thing a child intuitively develops in. A young child will learn to crawl, and to walk, and to talk. A young child will learn to observe people around him and her and how to respond and react. A young child will learn to lie. A young child will learn to seek himself or herself. A young child will not, on his or her own, learn about Jehovah's faithfulness. Rather, the young child will, in his own nature, manifest that same sinfulness that Israel manifested. Grown adults manifested. The child will be a sinner. Is a sinner. And therefore, we must teach the child that not because of his or her righteousness or obedience, but rather what makes necessary the faithfulness of Jehovah is the child's sins. Jehovah will yet be faithful to his promises. And now we who are in the New Testament can do something in driving the point home that the Old Testament saint could only do in picture form. We can point the child to the proof of this. Faithfulness, power, praises of Jehovah God, and the supreme of all his wonderful works In the sending of Jesus Christ into our flesh. In putting on Jesus Christ our sin, guilt, and curse. And in causing Jesus Christ to bear that curse and wrath of God in full on the tree of the cross. So that to our child we can say, your sins have been paid for. That's part of the faithfulness of Jehovah God. What the Old Testament Israelite parent would do as he said to his son, you understand why I selected this lamb, don't you? You understand why we're going to the temple and why this lamb's going to be killed, don't you? You understand what this lamb is a picture of and what the shed blood of the lamb points to, don't you? Now the New Testament parent could say to his child, we look not forward, but we look backward. The work... Of atonement is a finished work. Here is the proof of Jehovah's love. Of his power to save a sinful people. And here all the praises of Jehovah. His mercy, etc. come together. That's what we will teach our children. The goal of this instruction is that our children join in Praising Him. I said those praises don't refer first of all to our praising of Him, but to those virtues about Him that make Him praiseworthy. Nevertheless, when the child of God, young and old, see the praises of Jehovah, then we will break out in singing and in confession. And so part of teaching our children the praises of God is teaching our children to sing. Psalm 78, as is true of all of the Psalms, is a song. When we teach our children to sing, The Lord is my shepherd. When we teach our children to sing, Rejoice in your King, as we did in Psalter 408 a little earlier. When we teach our children to sing the songs that speak of Jehovah's praiseworthy works, then not only have we evidence that we talk, but also a beautiful testimony that the Holy Spirit has worked in the child's heart to hear and to receive. You'll teach your child many other things. Do not fail to teach your child Jehovah's praises, strength, wonderful works, and faithfulness. To do so is the God-given duty of God's people. The text does not set forth a command. That's to be acknowledged. To call this a duty is not to find in the text a command thou shalt. As I said in the introduction though, the we will of the text, the resolve of the parents proceeds from an understanding that God has given us these commands and that we are duty bound to carry them out. There are therefore in the text three things that are worthy of note in connection with the duty that God lays on us. The first is the answer to the question, whose duty is it? We will not hide them. That means, of course, that it's the duty, first of all, of parents. The we are parents. Those to whom God has given children in The family unit, the most foundational calling of the father and mother, in addition to the care of the physical bodily need of the helpless child, is the calling to instruct. What is striking in the word we is first of all the fact that this means more than one. And so from that I can make an application to the calling of both father and mother. The father is the head of the home, and as such it is the father's calling to see to it that his children are instructed in the fear of Jehovah God. So much is that the father's calling, that even though he's probably not going to give it his full-time attention as he's busy at work and in other uh, pursuit of other kingdom causes, that he must be sure that when he has time with his children, this is prominent. And it may be that the father takes his child hunting or fishing, teaches him to do some or another task around the house, and in that way prepares his child for life, but always the goal of the father is to prepare the child for life in the service of Jehovah, this governs all you teach. In the second place, the role of the mother in teaching the children is also prominently set forth in Scripture. Think of Proverbs 31 as a for instance. Think of other passages in the New Testament in which mothers are given a calling And a command, and that command really is to be fulfilled in the raising of the children. And then look at Timothy as an example to whom the Apostle Paul says, It was your mother and your grandmother, Lois and Eunice, who were the means of Jehovah God to work in you this faith. The calling of a mother. A mother who has more time for the child as she is with the child throughout the day, a mother who might at times think that in the first few months of mothering, the the care of the earthly needs of the child consumes her, and she has not time to do much else, still has time to sing to her child as she feeds the child. And to tell the child, even before the child can understand about a God who created the child and who loves the child. That first of all in the we. But now we can expand even more. What's striking is that the text is not just a parent or a set of parents saying we've got our child in mind and we will teach our child. The text has a broader perspective to it. The we is Israel. And that comes out from the mention of we not hiding it from their children. It's one thing to say, I won't hide it from my child. But now the parents look at their child and they say of this child, this is not just my child, this is their child. And what's meant here is that the child is the child of the grandparents also, and of the great-grandparents also. In other words, the psalmist is remembering the doctrine of the covenant of Jehovah God, his friendship that he establishes with us in Christ, as it continues in the line of generations. And notice both in the text and in the following verses, how many generations he has in mind. We, that's the parents, their children, so the children, that's the generation following the parents. And then there refers to uh, his ancestors showing to the generation to come. And then in verse 6, that the generation to come might know them, who should arise and declare them to their children. You have four generations explicitly mentioned, and then the generation past is all lumped into one. And you could divide that out, too, and say, well, there are more generations past. The children are the children of the covenant. Some have called them the church's children, and that's not a wrong way to say it, although it could be misunderstood. For Rome, too, will say, those are my children. And Rome, in saying that, will say, you will raise them to be loyal sons of Rome. You will raise them, working, inculcating in them the knowledge of Romish doctrine. That's not what we mean when we say they are the church's children. That in some Protestant sense or Reformed sense now, the church says we own them and can control them. In no way is the responsibility taken off the parent when the text presents them as the church's children. Rather, they are the church's children because they are part of the church. The beautiful truth that Jesus taught, Suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. The church's children, because they too have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. They too are renewed by the Spirit of Christ. To them too have come the covenant promises of God. The heir of salvation they are. The inheritance of heaven is for them. Therefore, we will teach them. And so the church assists the parents and encourages the parents in fulfilling the parent's calling. One way in which the church does this in an official way is by the preaching of the gospel and by catechism instruction. We bring our children to church that they might hear the gospel. We send them to catechism that they might hear about this Jehovah God. Another way in which the church does so, not as an institute now, but as an organism, is that we band together as parents to say, we will hire good Christian teachers to teach our children. And yet a third way in which the church does so, as an organism, is that every parent stands ready to go to every other parent. And grandparents and great-grandparents stand ready to come to new young parents And say to those parents, be diligent. It can be discouraging. You teach and you teach and you teach. And it seems sometimes that your children are not learning. It can be discouraging. Keep up the work. Teach them. And may the Lord bless it. God-given duty comes to parents... Who are part of the covenant church of Jesus Christ. Secondly, as regards the duty, the question is to who? And in a way we've addressed this, it's to their children and to the generations to come. But two things are implied. And the first is that Jehovah God in Jesus Christ loves children, likes children. Yes, redeemed, Spirit-filled children. Yes, not each and every child head for head any more than He loves each and every person head for head, but He loves children. God in His providence gave us to be members of a church that understands that. There are many Christians who don't. Especially those who view baptism as being only for those who have come to years and are able to confess their faith. Must, if they are going to be consistent with their doctrine, view the children as not part of the church Not yet loved by Jesus Christ. And though there may well be and are many brothers and sisters in Christ who might have that view, yet you and I can say, what a discouraging, discouraging view of children. Now, the Reformed don't say that every child of mine is regenerated, that every child of mine will be in heaven. We understand that the decree of election also cuts through my family lines and of reprobation the same. And yet, to be able to say of my child and to my child, but Jehovah God loves you. And only if someday you live the kind of life where I have reason that I can't tell you that will I begin telling you He doesn't. But I can tell my infant He loves you. Christ died for you. what a motivation to teach. You and I can be thankful that we understand that Jesus Christ loves His lambs. We have a privilege entrusted to us then. Furthermore, the text addresses the question of how we will carry out this duty. It puts it negatively. We will not hide them. Really, you see, that's what we do if we don't teach. We hide. You might say that overstates it. If I don't teach, I've simply neglected something. But the text puts it Actively, in a negative way, but actively. Do you not teach? Then you are hiding. When Israel, when the people of God forgot, then the point isn't that this one day they were going about their task and Jehovah God was just someone that they didn't cross their mind that day, they didn't think about Him. They failed to teach, and therefore they forgot. And that's what goes on here too. To say we will not hide is to say we will show, we will teach. Embedded in the word show, especially the Hebrew word here translated, is the idea that we will name the works of God one by one. Indeed, a little child needs to learn to count, and it's one of the first things a child learns. One, two, three. And that's the kind of language a psalmist uses here. I'm going to teach my child the ABCs about Jehovah. I'm going to teach him one, two, three. Number 1, God created the world. Number 2, when mankind fell into sin in Adam and Eve, God promised a Savior. Number 3, throughout the whole Old Testament, God remembered that promise. And so he sent prophets to remind the people. Number four, all of the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law in the Old Testament pointed to the Jesus Christ who had come, etc. One by one. That's the point of we will show, we will count. It means that the the parent is taking the child on his or her lap. That the parent is spending time with the child intentionally to convey these things. It also means that the parent will do so Repeatedly. For repetition is the key to learning. And though I've been told something ten times, it may be it has not yet sunk down in my brain, which perhaps, especially in the case of a more mature person, is our fault. But in the case of a child, it is part of the educational, pedagogical process. Evidently, If the calling of parents to teach these things to their children and consciously show them, enumerate them to the children is the calling set forth in their text. The parent must have time. Much time with his child. And that father and mother who says, but I have no time is neglecting to carry out a god-given duty. Now there's something striking here that God would give us this duty. You can stop back, you can make a step back, you can make some objections or at least ask questions, you can say, is it not true that the elect are all saved? Is it not true that every redeemed child of God gets to heaven? Is it not true that only the Holy Spirit can work faith in my child? Why then is the calling coming to me? I am not God. And on the one hand, the parent must remember that. No, I am not God. Just as a preacher and as a missionary, sometimes in carrying out his calling to teach and preach, finds that there are those who hear and hate Him for it. So there are times when the parent is caused to see very clearly, I am not God, because he has a child who says, my parents tried making me religious. Church was all that mattered to them. And in today's day and age, children will sometimes say of such parents, that was spiritual abuse. At that point, a parent might say, why do I do this? I can't work faith in my child anyway. Why do I do this? Why do we? Because Jehovah God who alone by his grace saves, alone regenerates a dead heart of the children as he regenerated our own once dead hearts, uses means. Just can't get around what's so obvious again and again in the scriptures. The promise of Jehovah is not that as I do it, it will bear lovely fruit. And at every point, each one of my children will praise Jehovah God and be godly. That is not the promise of Jehovah. But decide that you and I are not going to teach our children. And then he says to you and to me, What made you think I'd save any of them? He didn't teach. He uses means. Indeed, that's what we came to church for today. To hear the preaching of the gospel. A means to see and witness and administer the sacrament of baptism. A means. So really, does Jehovah God, who alone, sovereignly, by grace, saves, tie his work of salvation to the use of weak, human, sinful, fallible means that he says, you must teach. And the parents say, we will. This becomes now the reason why we make a God-glorifying vow. We will. A vow is a promise to Jehovah God. And the promise to Jehovah God is a promise made also in the hearing of others. We heard a vow this morning when parents said one word, yes. That one word was a promise made to Jehovah God in our hearing that they understood the calling God laid on them and in the power and strength God would give them resolved to carry it out. And that's what parents are doing here in the text. We will not hide, but show a vow. Why do we make this vow? In the first place, certainly obedience to Jehovah's command. And that shows reverence on the part of parents. It demonstrates godliness on our part. That Jehovah gives us a command, and instead of being like Israel saying, we're not going to, we won't listen. The parent says, "I will, of course, what further motivates us in the keeping of the vow and explains the making of the vow is gratitude to Jehovah for our knowledge of him. you 'll learn more about Jehovah as you get older that 's the nature of it, and even you 're teaching your children about Jehovah." will be the occasion for you to grow in your knowledge, but you yourself will say today that you're not about to teach your child an unfamiliar subject. You're not going to say, boy, I know nothing about this Jehovah, but I've got to teach my child about Him so I'd best go learn. You know Him. You confess Him. You look back in your life and you see His works in your life. Especially you see His work of salvation in you. And you say, I'm thankful. I will teach my children. And in the third place, what motivates and explains the reason for the vow is the fact that every godly parent desires one day to be in heaven with his Children, And so we labor, but that labor is accompanied by sweat, blood, and tears. And the tears drive us back to Jehovah God. We say to Jehovah, keep me from being frustrated with this child. This child who seems not to be learning. Keep me from giving up hope with that young child, that young adult of mine who is intent right now on living a life of ungodliness. Keep me from giving up because though I am the means, I cannot do it. The vow and our consciousness of making a vow, a weighty vow, drives us to Jehovah God in prayer. And yet we bring that prayer to Jehovah God in the confidence that he will hear and answer. For his testimony to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, and in the sacrament of baptism, in the washing away of sins, and the renewing of a godly life, his testimony to us is that he, as Father, and he, as Son, And He, as Holy Spirit, does everything necessary for the salvation of His children. Understand that? Then when you behold His praises, praise Him. And may we join with the church of all ages, past and future, who having been taught, Praise Him now, and in heaven will, to all eternity. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, to the honor and the glory of Thy name, receive our praise. Equip all parents to train our children in the fear of Thy name, and work in our children in understanding and a love for Thee which apart from our instruction they might not receive, but even with our instruction they will not take to heart apart from thy blessing. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.